Nuclear Hot Seat Milestones A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, and so does a podcast. One week at a time, one episode at a time, and suddenly we're at a milestone. Nuclear Hot Seat's 600th episode. 600 weekly one-hour presentations forming a narrative of 11 and a half years of what the nuclear industry has been up to and what the activists have been doing to oppose it. And now, both the show and I have been acknowledged with the International Nuclear Free Future Award in Education. When this started, nobody knew what it would lead to, if anything, and you could not imagine the stories that we covered that would not only anger us and motivate us to act, but to elevate hearts and spirits. One such story in July of 2017 was when we spoke with Professor Heidi Hutner, who is in the room where it happened, and in a Nuclear Hot Seat exclusive, she told us, I'm at the UN in New York City. A historic moment just happened. The United Nations just voted almost by consensus in favor of this treaty to prohibit the use of nuclear weapons and to move forward with getting rid of them. This is a tremendous moment because it's saying the rest of the nation don't want this, don't want to proceed with this, and so for truly moving forward with the abolition of nuclear weapons. Well, that's just one instance when this program puts you up close and personal with history. In this case, providing a you are there perspective on the passage of the United Nations Treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons. As you share in the power and elation of that achievement, you realize that you are listening to history through this strategic media tool in our battle to get you, me, and this entire planet out of that deadly seat that we have all been sharing. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, as you've already heard, we celebrate the 600th episode of Nuclear Hot Seat with a look back on 11 and a half years of programs covering the full range of the nuclear industry. We also celebrate with gratitude and a humble heart that I have just been awarded the 2022 Nuclear Free Future Award for Education. More on that coming up. And in addition to this retrospective, we will also have Linda Pence Gunter of Beyond Nuclear with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, as well as more honest nuclear information than we could squeeze into mainstream media between all of last week's propaganda hoopla about nuclear fusion. Today is Tuesday, December 20th, 2022, and here is this week's special look back at the first 11 and a half years of Nuclear Hot Seat. Like so many of you, I was devastated 
when I first learned of the earthquake and tsunami in Japan. And that devastation continued and deepened when I found out about the involvement of the nuclear reactors at Fukushima Daiichi. Three meltdowns, radiation releases, explosions. It brought up all my suppressed memories about the terror at Three Mile Island and made me want to do something. But what? My professional background is as an award-winning playwright and musical theater writer, as well as working in mainstream media, including WGN in Chicago, WGBH in Boston, and for movie studios in Hollywood. But the idea to create a podcast on nuclear issues did not come to me until I was on retreat in Sequoia three months after the nuclear disaster in Japan began. I had spent days crying, meditating, journaling, hugging trees, trying to apologize to nature for what we as a species had done to her. On my fourth day, in the middle of a meditation, it was like I heard a voice in my right ear say, you will do your first podcast this Tuesday. Now, a disclaimer. I am neither clairaudient nor schizophrenic. I don't walk around hearing voices. But this was like a message from somewhere else. Interpret that any way you like. And I tried to argue with it. I don't know how to do a podcast. I've never thought of doing a podcast. I am not an expert on nuclear issues. How in the world could I... And the voice kept saying the same thing. You will do your first podcast this Tuesday. Finally, seemingly annoyed with my endless stream of excuses, the voice said, if you don't do your first podcast this Tuesday, you will always regret it. Well, you don't regret what you do, you regret what you don't do. And I've lived my life to have as few regrets as possible, leading to a lot of really embarrassing experiences and some great adventures. So the following Monday, when I got home, vowing to have no regrets, I posted a single notice on Facebook asking if anyone would be interested in getting on a conference call to discuss the possibility of a weekly program on nuclear issues. Two people actually showed up, and one of them I didn't even know. Here are a few inelegant moments from that first program, which I didn't even know was a first program in a series that would go this long. It was just a conversation on a conference line. My name is Libby Halevi, and we are talking on Tuesday, June 14th, 2011. And uh, the purpose of this call is to discuss the nuclear issues that are going on in the world. Since Fukushima, on March 11th of this year, uh, I have been absorbed in what's going on, the information that's out there, the various ramifications it's having, the lack of information that is getting to most people, and what it is that we need to do in order to maintain our health, maintain our sanity, and do something to turn around the nuclear situation so that we're no longer being um, subjected to the dangers of having a dirty bomb in our backyard. And that's why I want to do this. I don't even know what this is, but I'm willing to hang out with the process, make it available, make it a little more visible next time around maybe, and um, do my little bit to get the word out and help raise people's awareness that we do not need to panic, we do need to act. 
and by admitting to the fear and turning around and finding one small thing to do every day, we will get, begin the process of empowerment and change. Early days for the program were challenging because nobody knew who I was, so why should they make the time to go on my podcast? Some people booked with me and then blew me off without letting me know they weren't going to be there. Back at the beginning, I did the show live at 4 p.m. Pacific time, and after an interview would open up the phone lines for questions from our callers. I don't know if there is anything more embarrassing than making that announcement and having it be followed with dead silence. I solved that problem by contacting one of my two original callers before each show begging him to be on the line and giving him a question or two to get things started if he didn't have any of his own to ask. Usually, he was my only caller. Thanks, Tim. One of my early successes was an interview with John Solomon, Vice President of Purchasing from Eden Foods, a company which specializes in organic macrobiotic foods, much of which is sourced from Japan. I tracked him down for nuclear hot seat number seven, from July 26, 2011, to find out what his company had done to determine the safety of foods imported from Japan in the immediate aftermath of Fukushima. And please, pardon the sound quality. It took me a while to get those chops together. The hardest thing to acquire was information first. And getting through all of the the tragedy was was uh, the, the first part you know a lot of the suppliers we were dealing with and trying to acquire information from these suppliers and what was happening was second and then trying to acquire information from uh, governmental agencies in, in North America was was, uh, was number three and none of the agencies was very forthcoming on what to do and how to do it and that was when my department uh, realized we, we have to create this ourselves and we have to really address every, uh, every variable that could uh, affect our food. Eden Foods bought their own radiation monitors and checked containers, packaging, and contents to find out not just about the food, but to judge worker safety. However, finding a lab to test the food itself for radiation proved much more difficult. They were labs in Canada, but the labs would not accept the product coming into the country because it had not been tested yet, which was kind of funny. So they couldn't do the tests because you hadn't tested it. As for official American response to requests for radiation monitoring help, here's what he had to say about the FDA. What, if anything, has the FDA been doing in all of this? FDA has been coming in periodically when we receive containers and they will put the container on hold and they will visit our warehouses and they will scan the product. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you the FDA did not seem as if they were prepared for this tragedy. Uh, one of the first visits out to our warehouse, uh, one of the FDA agents said, boy, your, uh, your radionuclide detector is a lot better than ours and they had trouble getting theirs started. Figuring out how to work it. Oh dear! I've used them in a long time. John Solomon, Vice President of Purchasing for Eden Foods, as recorded for Nuclear Hot Seat Number Seven, July 26, 2011, only four months after the Fukushima disaster began. 
By six months into production, the live format was gone. No more call-ins. And we now had an opening bit for each episode. When I learned that there were sirens around San Onofre Nuclear Power Station here in Southern California, meant to notify the local populace if there was an accident, I got a recording of it to use as Nuclear Hot Seat's first audio signature. That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Well, that was annoying. And it only lasted for about a year. By the way, before I go further, I just have to tell you this little tidbit. The warning sirens at San Onofre needed to be highly reliable. So they were each powered by their own attached solar panel. That's right. Solar. Powering safety warning equipment at a nuclear power generating station. Think about that one. Anyway... I took advantage of my musical theater background to go in an opposite direction from that annoying, depressing siren and write a silly ditty, which I then gave to professional musician friends Marilee Weber and John Barnard. They arranged it and recorded it at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. You hear the result every week at the top and tail of the show, as well as the stinger on Numbnuts of the Week. Nuclear Hot Seat has been a weekly education for me. I learned from one early interview that human knowledge of uranium's danger far predates Madame Curie's work in the 1800s. Marius and Candace Paul, of the Genesiline First Nations people in northern Saskatchewan, were activists I met online. I asked for an interview to discuss uranium mining and nuclear waste storage issues in their beautiful homeland. Here, for Nuclear Hot Seat number 74 from November 13, 2012, Marius explains the warnings his grandfather gave about the Black Stone, traditional knowledge which had been passed down to his people for untold generations and point to the earliest warnings about radiation dangers. There is an ancient tribal wisdom in your people about what is called the Black Stone and how the people were supposed to deal with it. Can you explain that story and how it relates to uranium? We're... Uh, transliterating from the Denisovine language and tongue to the English language. Ancient stories about the black stone Tezanedic, she called it, and I had remembered it from way, way back. My grandfather, who lived up in the northern areas of, of Saskatchewan during the fur trade era, 1800 up into the 1900s, he was quite old when he passed on. But he always forbade everybody to not touch those black stones. He did mention that when they were underground, they served like a little stove, he called it. They were very, very warm. It was a very controlled type of heating underground, which continuously was providing some kind of heat. And this is the, what is it called, pitch blend or pitch stone? I think so. Scientists that I've been communicating with have also indicated that they, that they were possibly pitch blend. And the, before they appeared on the surface, they were white in color. They were underneath the ground. And that's why my grandfather always pointed that out. They were very, very pure in color. And then when it was exposed out in the open, it, was, it turned quite dark. 
he always forbade those people, everyone, to not touch those things. And those stones, indeed, were the ones that contained uranium. Yes, they were uranium. To us, it was more than that. It was literally a deity, like God, or something that had a type of a sacred connection to us. So it was in that sense that we understood the block stone. Marius Paul, who, with his wife Candace Paul, are First Nations Denesaline people in northern Saskatchewan and ongoing activists in the fight against Canada citing a nuclear waste dump on their ancestral lands. After I left Three Mile Island and came back to Los Angeles, my editor at LA Weekly handed me a copy of the previous week's paper, which featured an interview with a woman I'd never heard of, a Dr. Helen Caldicott. In the interview, she was honest and direct about difficult nuclear truths that I hadn't encountered anywhere else. She particularly focused on the health impact of low-level radiation, with a timeline of how many years after exposure it would take before illnesses first showed up. Leukemia and thyroid cancer in 3 to 5 years, hard tumors in 12 to 15 years, and all kinds of cancers and other diseases ongoing from then on. Her words the most honest I encountered, though they were terribly frightening at the time, motivated me towards a healthier diet, holistic healers, supplementation, herbs, and much more that I now take for granted as my basic lifestyle. For those of us who oppose nuclear, I consider Dr. Caldicott the mother of us all. I'd held her in such a mythological place in my psyche for so long it's no surprise that when I first tried to interview her at an event, I was so tongue-tied that I stuttered and could only mumble out a few questions before my brain froze and I took my embarrassed leave. Since then, my esteem for her has continued to grow, but thankfully, my comfort level with speaking with her has increased. Here are two brief excerpts from my interviews with Dr. Caldicott. In this first one, she responds to my question as to what activists need to do to up our game. I think that it's, it's imperative that people who are deeply concerned about all things nuclear learn as much as they can about the medical effects of radiation, the biological effects. And I have written two books specifically in that area. One is called Nuclear Power is Not the Answer by the New Press. And the other one is Nuclear Madness, What You Can Do by W.W. W. Norton. If you read those two books, you'll know more than anyone who's interviewing you. You'll know more than the people at the nuclear power stations or the NRC because they don't understand radiobiology. So once you're armed with the facts, then you'll know what you have to do. No one's ever told me what to do. I just kind of know as I learn more, and I do it. While attending Dr. Caldicott's 2012 symposium on the medical and ecological impacts of the Fukushima nuclear accident, I got to ask her a question that's been on a lot of people's minds. Is there any place on Earth that is not yet polluted with radiation? Yes, much of the southern hemisphere is not because the two air masses do not mix at the equator. However, the ocean currents do and a huge quantity of radiation, almost unimaginable, has been tipped into the ocean from Fukushima and of course fish swim thousands of miles and ocean's currents go from north to south. So that's a problem. But the And we had British tests in Australia 
Australia too, which polluted some of Australia. Um, but we are much less polluted in the Southern Hemisphere than the Northern Hemisphere. So if you would want to take a family someplace that would be safer and could get out of, say, the United States or any place yeah. in the Northern Hemisphere, what would you suggest? I'd go to Australia or South America. Is there one question you've always wanted to be asked in an interview and haven't, or a response you've wanted to give that you haven't had an opportunity to give yet? Why haven't we saved the earth yet? Dr. Helen Colnicott. Unfortunately, I was unable to find the clip where I asked her, if things here in America go south, radiationally speaking, and I manage to evacuate to Australia, could I sleep on her couch until I got myself settled? After she stopped chortling, she kindly moved on to another subject without comment. One of the great, painful, ongoing revelations I gained through doing this show is how the nuclear industry has, from the start, devastated indigenous people around the world. Here is a brilliant, brief summary by Ian Zabarte. He is principal man of the Western Bands of the Shoshone Nation of Indians and a board member of the Native Community Action Council. Ian wrote and recorded a piece entitled A Message from the Most Bombed Nation on Earth, which was carried originally by Al Jazeera. I found it so moving, I had to share. From Nuclear Hot Seat number 483, September 22, 2020. You never know what's killing you when it's done in secret. Every family here is affected. We've seen mental and physical retardation, leukemia, childhood leukemia, all sorts of cancers. My name is Ian Zabarti and I'm principal man of the Western Bands of the Shoshone Nation of Indians, the most bombed nation on earth. Our country is approximately 40,000 square miles just west of Las Vegas in Nevada all the way to the Snake River in Idaho. We've been on this land at least 10,000 years. Our relationship to the United States is based upon the Treaty of Ruby Valley, signed in 1863. In the treaty, the Shoshone continued to own the land, but we agreed that in exchange for $5,000 a year for 20 years, the United States could establish military posts on it. But shortly before the end of World War II, we started to be overrun by the United States military-industrial complex in ways we are only just beginning to understand. Then, in 1951, the United States established the Nevada Proving Grounds on Shoshone territory and began testing nuclear weapons without our consent or knowledge. On January 27, 1951, the first nuclear test took place on our lands when a one kiloton bomb was dropped from a plane flying over it. Over the next 40 years, more than 900 nuclear tests took place on Shoshone territory, 100 in the atmosphere and more than 800 underground. When the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima in 1945, 13 kilotons of nuclear fallout rained down on the Japanese city. But according to one study, between 1951 and 1992, the tests conducted on our land caused 620 kilotons of nuclear fallout. When the fallout came down, it was Native American communities living downwind from the site who were most exposed. We consumed contaminated wildlife, drank contaminated milk, lived off of contaminated land. For Native American adults, the risk of exposure has been shown to be 15 times greater than for other Americans. For young people, that increased to 30 times, and for babies, it can be as much as 50 times greater. As a result, we have watched our people die. For almost 70 years, we have been suffering from this silent killer, and the United States government's culture of secrecy has kept it silent. 
but we are beginning to understand what has happened to us. We obtained documents that were declassified in the 1990s, but there are almost 2 million pages. Trying to understand all of this is daunting, but we are doing that work alone and without funding or support. In every part of the world where there have been nuclear catastrophes or nuclear testing, there are health registries to monitor those who have been exposed. We don't have that here in the United States, and we need it. We cannot wait any longer for the health disparities we are experiencing to be identified. We continue to endure, and we live with the understanding that the radiation is there on the ground. It is there in our plants, in our animals, and inside of our people. Killing Shoshone people was never part of the treaty we signed. Our people would never have engaged in something that would result in our own destruction. Our custom is sharing, but when all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. And that is what the U.S. military has been doing, hammering the Shoshone with bombs. That was Ian Zabarte, principal man of the Western Bands of the Shoshone Nation of Indians and a board member of the Native Community Action Council. Some of the worst nuclear devastation played out on Navajo Nation land. Only three months after Three Mile Island, on the morning of July 16, 1979, a 20-foot section of an earthen dam at the uranium tailings waste pool for United Nuclear Corporation's uranium mill in Church Rock, New Mexico, collapsed. It released more than 94 million gallons of highly acidic water, containing 1,100 tons of radioactive uranium waste material. The fluid and waste flowed into the adjacent Perky River, traveling 80 miles downstream past Sanders, Arizona, leaving a trail of radioactive contamination that has never been cleaned up. It remains the single largest release of radioactive material in U.S. history. Like most of us in America, I was completely unaware of the Church Rock disaster, I was fortunate to be able to travel to Church Rock, New Mexico in 2019 for the 40th anniversary of the uranium tailings disaster. I spoke with a miner who was on site the day that the accident happened. Local residents who weren't informed of the deadly nature of what had just happened. People who lived in proximity with uranium mines as well as this catastrophe. Those working on the resulting health problems and the anniversary event itself where I walked in community with those most affected up the road from Redwater Pond Road community to the site of the spill. The full story of Church Rock is told on a special nuclear hot seat, number 423 from July 30th, 2019. Here is an expert, my interview with Teresita Kiyama. She has lived her entire life in the Redwater Pond Road community and was not even born when the Church Rock uranium spill happened but that did not stop her exposure to uranium mining waste by what was around her home and deposited by the spill. I asked her what she had been told about the accident while growing up. Nothing. I wasn't aware of it. I didn't know much about it. As a child, I played in these abandoned uranium mills and mining areas, and my grandmother owned sheep, so... Sometimes I had to herd the sheep or get the sheep when they got onto the mining areas, the milling areas, and there was no fencing up. And so I just walked right in, got our sheep, came back through, got them back at home. Nobody ever said, you don't go in these areas, that's dangerous, nothing like that. 
the first visible signs of impact from the spill came from the livestock. A sheep that had been butchered years ago and the entire insides, the internal organs, all are tinted yellowish and that's due to the radiation. The problems continue to this day. They won't allow us to plant crops because we can't eat them, can't keep our livestock. The reason why we have our livestock is because we utilize them as an economic way and also a cultural way. We don't just keep just to have, as white folks like to have horses and cows just to be there. We like to utilize everything. So our sheep, we eat it. The wool, we use it to create rugs. Through the years, the impact on her family's health has been extensive and devastating. We have had cancers, respiratory illnesses. We've had some people pass away from respiratory illnesses, pulmonary fibrosis, COPD. So basically these people who have passed away from respiratory illnesses, we had to watch them suffocate to death. And it was very traumatic and it's something that we have to live and endure just because it's almost a norm here because of the radiation and the impact that the dust and the water and the land has done to our bodies, done to our community. You know, you hate to say it, but it's kind of just like environmental racism, where our community is somewhat seen as expendable. You hate to say it, and you hate to feel that way, but that's how it feels for our entire community, that we are the expendable people, because it took so long for anybody to acknowledge what was going on here. Teresita Kiana of the Redwater Pond Road community in Navajo Nation. One of my more memorable interviews was with Sister Megan Rice. As an 82-year-old nun, she and two other senior citizens easily breached security at the Y-12 National Security Complex in Oak Ridge, Tennessee to conduct a nonviolent demonstration against nuclear weapons called Transform Plowshares Now. Y-12 is considered one of the nation's most important national security assets, and the U.S. was so embarrassed by this petite senior citizen's ability to outwit them and gain access that they upped their charges from misdemeanor trespass to felony counts and sentenced her to just under three years in prison. She was released after serving two years, and I was able to interview her shortly thereafter. This is from Nuclear Hot Seat number 205 from May 26, 2015. You were initially charged with misdemeanor trespass, and then suddenly the charges were up to damaging a defense facility under the Sabotage Act, which carries a sentence of up to 20 years in prison. And there was also the charge of causing more than $1,000 damage to government property, which carries up to 10 years in prison. Why do you think the charges against you were so dramatically increased in their severity? Obviously, they didn't want a trial. They thought we would try to get out easily with a plea bargain. Oh, was that the strategy? Uh, oh, absolutely. They always want plea bargains. 
was there any question in your mind about taking the plea bargain? No you question. Along? No possibility of a question. And what did you hope to accomplish with the trial and the resulting disability? To doing what we had to do. It's the obligation of every, we're all equally responsible to expose and oppose known crimes. So there was nothing else we could do but do it in order to make a very clear message quickly. Sister Megan Rice, there's much more that is deeply nourishing to the heart and the hope that we have. And for that reason, it has become my traditional Christmas interview. It will be on the show next week for Nuclear Hot Seat number 601. All of the episodes that are being referenced here are available in full on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com. You can search under episode number or keywords, such as the name of the person interviewed or the issue under discussion. And while you're on the website, help us celebrate 600 episodes and the international acknowledgement of receiving the Nuclear Free Future Award for Education. So much good news. You know, sometimes I feel like every week when I record the show, I'm sitting alone at my desk, talking or shouting into the microphone, as my dog stares at me as if to say, Mom, why do you talk to yourself like that? When all that is happening, it's hard to realize the impact of nuclear hot seat. It takes reaching milestones and hearing back from you, the listeners, that makes the reality of it hit home. So please, join the celebration. Make it something meaningful to our future. Yes, a note of acknowledgement to me is really appreciated and helps my heart. And as for the show, how about making a year-end holiday gift-giving tax-deductible celebratory whoopee donation? It all goes to support the website, the updates, and pay all of the monthly fees to various platforms necessary to produce and disseminate the show. It's through the support of listeners like you that we've gotten this far together. So jump right in and help it out. If you have donated to us before, thank you. You have become part of the fabric of Nuclear Hot Seat and what keeps us going. And if you haven't yet helped us out but have thought about it, Stop thinking, take action. Now is the time. Honor 600 episodes with $600. Or 600 dimes, which would be $60. Or 600 pennies, $6. Which you can send as a one-time donation, or you can make monthly. And trust me, it's those monthly $5 and $6 donations that keep this show running. So hit the pause button, take a moment now, go to NuclearHotSeat.com, and click on the red Donate button. Do what you can Know that whatever you can do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. When the opportunity arose, I returned to the scene of the crime, Three Mile Island near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, not once, but twice, for the 39th and the 40th anniversaries. While the nuclear industry is fond of claiming that nobody died at Three Mile Island, I was always concerned about radiation exposure and had a hard time finding any solid information on it. But I got the information I needed on this trip. First, Arnie Gunderson, Chief Engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education, a former nuclear industry insider turned whistleblower, and what a whistleblower he still is, 
spoke about radiation levels and why the readings were so difficult after Three Mile Island. This is an excerpt from a press conference speech given by Arnie in the rotunda of the Pennsylvania State House for TMI's 40th anniversary. How much radiation was released? And the answer is nobody knows. And the reason for that is that every single radiation detector in every single vent that left the plant was pegged. That when they built Three Mile Island, they really wanted to detect the low levels of radiation that would be released. And they put all low level radiation detectors in the stack and in all the ventilation systems. But when the disaster happened, all of those went off scale high. So nobody measured what went out of Three Mile Island. So at best, scientists like me have to calculate based on what we know was measured out in the environment. The NRC on their website, very shortly after the nuclear disaster at TMI, came out with 10 million curies. Curies is a measure of radiation. And a curie is 37 billion disintegrations per second. So 37 billion times 10 million is what the NRC said. And um, I'll submit as part of this presentation that that's incredibly low. Most of the measurements were made by driving a car around through the local neighborhoods and out into the, the hillsides, and also from helicopters. And you'll look in my press packet, and I have two quotes from a senior guy at the NRC, a guy named John Collins. And, and John said that at best the car is iffy, and he didn't trust the helicopter data at all. Now if you think about it, a helicopter takes, takes pure air from above, and pushes that pure air down on the radiation detector below, diluting whatever the radiation levels were. So the, the car data is suspect and the helicopter data is useless. What I did was I plotted where the Nuclear Regulatory Commission looked on the first four days. And I compared it to the peer-reviewed paper that Dr. Steve Wing wrote. Ten years ago, I, I met Steve Wing right here in the rotunda. Dr. Wing was an epidemiologist at the UNC. Two years ago, he passed, a wonderful scientist. And Steve showed that there was a dramatic increase in cancer along the Susquehanna River Valley. This is peer-reviewed stuff. This went through a rigorous scientific process. What happened in the Susquehanna River Valley was that during the first couple days of the disaster, there was a temperature inversion over the valley. And that kept the radiation moving up and down the river, but it didn't uh, allow the radiation to move up into the hillsides as much. So if you look at Steve's data, which is on these slides, but also in the material I gave you, and I'll have a, a PDF up on the Fairwinds website after I speak at Penn Central. But if you look at that data, um, you'll see a, a clear correlation to cancer uh, increase versus where you lived in relation to the river valley. Arnie Gunderson, Chief Engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education. Later that weekend, I had an extensive conversation with Cindy Folkers. She is the Radiation and Health Specialist for Beyond Nuclear. What Cindy shared with me rocked me to my core because it gave me the exact information I've been looking for and not finding about what might have happened to me based on my exposure to the radiation at Three Mile Island. 
What kind of difficulties are there with figuring out what the impact has been on health of Three Mile Island? Well, there were a lot of difficulties. The first difficulty was that a lot of the monitors just simply weren't working. So they don't really know what exactly was released, how much radioactivity was released during the whole Three Mile Island disaster when it was spewing stuff out into the environment. Uh, We don't know what kind of radioactivity was released as far as the isotopes, the cesium, the strontium, the iodine. We suspect certainly that iodine was. But, you know, there was also an issue with the health impacts because there was a court order issued that basically established something called the Three Mile Island Health Fund. And as a stipulation of getting money from the fund, any researcher that wanted to use fund money was basically not able to look at the impact of higher doses. And if they had wanted to do so, then they had to have asked someone from the nuclear insurers to provide them with an expert to okay whatever it was they wished to study. It's an incredible agreement, and I say incredible in the most the most horrible way because in essence what that did was when researchers used money from the fund and they did find increases of health impacts they couldn't attribute those health impacts to radiation because the court said the doses were too low but the court had no way to know exactly what the doses were come to find out 15 years later the only study that was able to attribute any of the health Uh, the disease increases to radiation exposure was the Stephen Wing study. He was a University of North Carolina Chapel Hill epidemiologist professor there. And one of the aspects of his study, in addition to the epidemiological process, was that he drew people's blood. And the people's blood who he drew complained of symptoms of higher radiation exposure, such as skin reddening, metallic taste in the mouth, hair falling out, those kinds of symptoms. He drew over 20 people's blood. This was about 15 years later when it was done. And he had someone look at the chromosome malformation, specifically something called a dicentric ring, which is known to be a marker of radiation exposure. When they did that, they discovered that indeed those people had been exposed to 600 to 900 milligrays, which is 60 to 90 rads, which is so much more. And again, this was 15 years later after exposure, then certainly that the court was willing to allow researchers to investigate at that higher exposure level, but higher than any official or industry person was willing to admit at the time or even today. So what the monitors failed to measure, the people's blood who were exposed during the accident, the disaster really, their blood measured it just fine. The thing that is really awful today is that this doesn't seem that the fact that the, it was recorded in the blood, the radiation exposures were basically recorded in the blood, doesn't seem to have taken hold. These kinds of blood draws are not that I know of generally being used in most of post-accident scenario exposure dose reconstructions like Fukushima should be being used at Fukushima, should have been being used at Chernobyl for public, members of the public, not just workers and not just military. And this test has been around, this dicentric chromosome ring test has been around since the mid 20th century, so the 1950s or 60s. So to me, it's completely unconscionable that you don't believe the biological data, but a court order you'll believe as saying that the doses were too low, having absolutely no basis for making that statement. So it's 40 years later now. Is it possible that blood markers could still be found? 
In the Three Mile Island folks, I'm not enough of an expert to know. I do know that the technique is currently being used, although it's mostly in um, military or worker exposure context in the United States. It's out of Oak Ridge. And Fukushima, certainly. Chernobyl, possibly. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the blood draws at Three Mile Island, it was still showing, you were still able to get a dose read 15 years later. Now it's 40 years again here at Three Mile Island. So that would be a question for an expert. But, you know, we shouldn't be standing here saying, could we do it now? They should have just done it after the things exploded, (laughs) after Chernobyl blew, after Fukushima blew. It should have been within the first few months that they did this. There shouldn't be a question. My question is, why don't they use this technique? A good question, and still not any answer. Cindy Folkers, Radiation and Health Specialist for Beyond Nuclear, from Nuclear Hot Seat number 407, April 9, 2019. Finally, it is a beautiful and entirely unpredictable confluence of timing that has this 500th episode of Nuclear Hot Seat happening the same week that the United Nations Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons takes on force of law. That historic event happens this Friday, January 22, 2021, the first legally binding international agreement to comprehensively prohibit nuclear weapons, with the ultimate goal being their total elimination. The treaty prohibits states from participating in any nuclear weapons-related activities, including development, testing, possession, stockpile, use, or threat of use of nuclear weapons. It is the result of a successful campaign coordinated by the Nobel Peace Prize-winning organization ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. After years of stalemate, the treaty passed the United Nations on September 20, 2017, with 122 nations signing on. In the ensuing years, it has gone through the necessary processes to have been ratified by the more than 50 nations required for it to enter into force of law. But let's take it back to that exciting moment when the course of the future and of nuclear weapons changed forever. We contacted Professor Heidi Huttner. She is producer-director of the recently premiered and already award-winning film Radioactive, The Women of Three Mile Island. Heidi was present at the United Nations and in the room where it happened at the time of the vote. We were able to speak with her less than one hour after passage. As you can hear from our shared energy and excitement, it was a memorable occasion. Heidi, where are you and what just happened? Well, I'm at the UN in New York City, and a a historic moment just happened. The United Nations just voted almost by consensus, one vote abstention, one against, and all of the other 122 voted in favor of this treaty to prohibit the use of nuclear weapons and and to move forward with getting rid of them. Now, we know that, you know, the, the nine nuclear nations are not here and they're not participating. But this is a tremendous moment because it's saying the rest of the nation don't want this, don't want to proceed with this. And so for truly moving forward with the abolition of nuclear weapons. In reading about this, I have been in tears this morning. Tears, tears, lots of tears. Okay, so here was the moment. I was in there when they voted, when the the vote was announced and sealed uh, officially, and people were cheering, crying, hugging. It was a really powerful moment. And I was right next to the two nuclear nuns 
Carol Gilbert and Ardeth Platt, and they were the two nuns who went to jail in protest of nuclear weapons, and they were crying. All the women from ICANN who have come from all over the world, and then Kathleen Sullivan, who from the Hibakusha stories, uh, Robert Kroonquist, who's also from Hibakusha, everyone was weeping. Many women from all over the world, and then Australia, Japan, India. There was an amazing speech by the ambassador from South Africa, who spoke about this being the eve of Nelson Mandela Day, and how he is watching in this moment, and weeping, and so proud of this vote. It is thrilling, even from a distance, to know what has happened and that the history is here right in front of us, right at this moment. And what's the next step? What do we do to start implementing this around the world, including here in the United States, which has been probably will be the last one to sign on? Right. So I think what this is saying is, look, we have the rest of the world in support of this. And for those of us who, who are active and advocates on behalf of the abolition of nuclear weapons, we can now use this as a tool to both divest from banks that invest in nuclear weaponry, it's a really big one, the divestment campaign, and get this message out on social media. Everyone should be doing it. You've got plenty of opportunity now. Uh, you have material to work with. You can go to the ICANN website. There are leaders internationally and in promoting this. So there's lots of photographs and material there and articles. You can follow me, HeidiHutner.com. You can follow me on Facebook. I've got lots of photos. And retweet, re-Facebook. I mean, get it out there. We know our president. We know these people. Social media works. So use that and write letters to your editor, you know, tell your congressmen and congresswomen and senators, reinforce how important this is and how we need to join with the rest of the world and abolish these horrific, horrific weapons. Writer, producer, director, and professor Heidi Huckner from Nuclear Hot Seat number 316, July 11, 2017. And for a practical tip on what you can do, that you can take to the bank, literally. Here is Susie Snyder of Don't Bank on the Bomb explaining how you too can help cut the financial knees out from under the nuclear weapons industry. It's amazing. It's called Don't Bank on the Bomb. And that's the website too, don'tbankonthebomb.com. Step one, find out if your bank invests in nuclear weapon producers. Step two, contact your bank. Tell them you don't want them to. Step three, tell the world what the bank says. And if they don't get rid of investments, go public. Because no bank wants to look like a bad guy. It takes one or two people only to make a huge difference. And that can cut off the money stream to the companies that make nuclear weapons. You and I, we have more power than we think. And that power is sitting in our wallet. And how can people find out whether the companies that we're told the bank is supporting have any connection with the nuclear weapons industry? Well, we do a, a significant investigation every year. Now, it's not completely exhaustive, but we profile 28 companies that have association with nuclear weapons modernization and maintenance. And it's on our website, don'tbankonthebomb.com. And we really want people to use our information and contact us all the time. You can do that in, you know, through the website really easily. Contact me on Twitter, whatever works. And I'm happy to find out more. And if you find out, learn about more companies involved in nuclear weapons, tell us. We'll do the research and we'll make it public for everybody to use. Love it. Susie Snyder, 
who is then with Don't Bank on the Bomb and is now Financial Sector Coordinator for the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. We continued to grow, and 2021 marked an important expansion for Nuclear Hot Seat with the addition of Linda Pence Gunter, experienced journalist and international expert with Beyond Nuclear. She became a regular contributor to the show with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. Here she is with this week's trenchant insights on last week's deluge of stories on nuclear fusion and the points the media got wrong. Never have so many media outlets devoted so many headlines to so little. Precisely a nanosecond's worth of infinitely tiny progress that changes absolutely nothing, or at least not in the immediate future, and not for energy or climate. But the level of fanfare reached positive fever pitch last week when a scientific team at the Lawrence Livermore Lab's National Ignition Facility achieved a minuscule net gain of energy using fusion. Heralded as a breakthrough, the experiment delivered 3.15 megajoules of energy output to the 2.05 megajoules it put in for a few billionths of a second. But it took 192 lasers consuming 400 megajoules of energy to do it. And the NIF lab itself costs $3.5 billion to build and commission. The US reportedly invests a mere $700 million a year in fusion research, but it will have sunk at least $3.9 billion into the multinational ITER fusion fantasy in France, a tokamak reactor different from the one at NIF, and that recently suffered a technical setback forcing part of it to be dismantled. That fusion project is likely to soar to $65 billion before completion. Fusion has always been, and despite the misplaced excitement last week, remains decades away from becoming meaningful in any practical way, at least for energy purposes. And yet, after the NIF announcement, there followed the most disgraceful outpouring of statements, let's politely call them misleading, hailing this as some sort of milestone for climate change solutions. Here's U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. This astonishing scientific advance puts us on the precipice of a future no longer reliant on fossil fuels, but instead powered by new clean fusion energy. Except that it doesn't, not at all. What it does, and was designed to do, is precisely what the National Nuclear Security Association told us. It's to allow the US to maintain, test, and upgrade its nuclear weapons arsenal without detonating actual nuclear weapons. Even if, and this is a very big if, some sort of practicable commercial fusion power station was actually built and became operational decades from now, it will be totally irrelevant. That's because by then, if we are still here, we will have done the right and only thing, moved away from large centralized sources of energy to smaller decentralized renewable energy and energy efficiency, a system in which nuclear power, whether fusion or fission, will effectively be useless. We've already cracked fusion, of course, decades ago. It's called solar energy. How ironic then that we continue to ignore the most obvious opportunity presented by fusion to harvest the power of the sun itself. Instead, even as renewable energy is soaring in application while dropping in price, absurd amounts of money continue to be squandered on the elusive pursuit of fusion. So much money for fusion and so little time to save the planet. 
Physicists may want to have their fun with fusion, but isn't there a moral imperative for them and for all of us to instead direct all of our energy to immediate and entirely practical endeavors that will save us from climate catastrophe? I think so. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat, and that's this week's hot story. So... This is just a brief sampling of a few of the highlights and teachable moments, myself being the teachable person, that I experienced in the first 600 episodes of Nuclear Hot Seat. And there are so many other stories here that I haven't had a chance to mention in the last year alone. Ukraine's nuclear reactors as targets of bombing in the war with Russia. Japan's intentions to dump radioactive water from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean. The lies that for now are extending the life of the Diablo Canyon reactors in California and so many others. If I'd not followed that impulse back in June of 2011, I would not have my current international network of friends, genuine friends who also serve as news sources in New Zealand, Brazil, Japan, Germany, France, England, India, Australia, and so many others. And as the world reawakens to nuclear dangers, our influence has grown to where, as a business podcast, Nuclear Hot Seat has ranked number 60 in Japan, 58 in Russia, 12 in Mongolia, and number one in Bolivia. And none of these are countries which specialize in speaking English. The people who fight against nuclear are some of the smartest, sharpest, kindest, most compassionate, as well as funniest people I have ever been privileged to meet. Head, heart, and soul. Each one of you has the full package, and I'm honored that I was able to come from out of nowhere and earn your trust as well as your friendship. As for the future, one week at a time, one show at a time, Nuclear Hot Seat will continue into the future as long as I am able to do so. And let's face it, plutonium has a half-life of 24,000 years. Doesn't look like I'm going anywhere, except back to the microphone after I've posted this show, to get started on next week's Nuclear Hot Seat, number 601. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, December 20th, 2022. My thanks to all of you for listening in from 124 countries around the world or on broadcast through the Pacific Audio Port Network. You can subscribe by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and filling in the yellow opt-in box. It will get you one email a week with all the necessary links. And remember, if you are on the Nuclear Hot Seat site, donate. We really need your help. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you every movement for change needs clear, honest communication channels, and that's what Nuclear Hot Seat provides every week. There you've got it. That has been your nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep, because let's face it, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.